Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. It's such a nice welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody. Is everybody having a lovely time at CrimeCon? Yeah? Is it lots of repeat offenders, or have we got people that have come for the first time? Hands up. Who's the first-timers? Oh, amazing. That's quite a lot. Enjoying it? Coming back... Okay, use the code Ferris. You'll get 10% off, okay? (laughs) Remember that. Remember that. I am Sarah Ferris, and I am a true crime podcaster. If you've come down to the corner, you will see that I might need a little podcast intervention. I've got three true crime ones, uh, Con in the Con, Clueless, and I've got Stop the Killing that I do with this absolute queen of women over here, Catherine Schweit, who is the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And I cannot tell you how many times people have just done audible gasps when I've said that this weekend. Um, And probably even more so after the talk that you've just done, which packed out the room. So, Catherine, I'll let you carry on and tell everyone a little bit more about you. So I am from the Midwest, but live in Washington, D.C. area now. Oh, is that what you want? And how many pets and... Oh, yeah, give it all. We love some animals. Okay, no pets. Um, (laughs) No pets because I travel a lot. And nowadays I travel a lot to places, wonderful places like London. Actually, I was with the FBI for 20 years, uh, finishing out in a senior executive position running the FBI's program that is trying to resolve mass shootings. And in the process, authored the FBI's first research on these types of shootings and worked with a great team of people and lots of law enforcement to, uh, to work on this, but that's not really why I was trained. I was originally trained at the FBI Academy, and my first 15 years was in national security matters. So ask me a question about espionage, and I can give you some answers, because that's what I worked on prior to the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. And when that occurred, I was plucked, uh, as we call it, voluntold. I was walking down the corridor someplace near the director's office, and I was plucked and sent over to the White House to work on a team there uh, with then-Vice President Biden who's now the President of the United States. So I've been working on that for the last uh, many years. I retired uh, because mandatory. I got kicked out in 2017. And I've continued to work in private industry, working to help companies in schools and to help people be not so afraid and realize how they can deal with gun violence and how we can reduce gun violence in the United States. She's pretty cool. That's my summary of her. So I feel really, really lucky to have connected with Catherine. And we've been doing this podcast now. We're into our fourth season of Stop the Killing. And I'm going to let you describe it as well, just because (laughs) I'm just not doing any of the heavy lifting today. Oh, okay. Good to know. Um, You're buying the (laughs) drinks later. Yeah. Uh, Standard. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Um, so Stop the Killing, it was a figment of Sarah's imagination. The title comes from actually a book that I wrote um, called Stop the Killing, just second edition, just out, which is about how we deal with and what we know about mass shootings in the United States and around the world. Um, but the reason that we did the podcast is Sarah and I, we were on a phone call together with somebody from California. She's in London. I live in Washington, D.C. We were on a joint call, and after the call, she contacted me and said, we should do a podcast. And I told her, I don't do podcasts. Um, it's true. I had to stalk her for And so she ages. stalked me for a while, and she said, here's what we can do. And we made this decision to do this podcast, because I said, I don't want to glorify shooters. And, uh, you know, I was talking to somebody. Somebody asked me a question. I'm not naming names, but they're in this room. And they named a shooter. I don't name any shooters. Mm. Um, so they're all just bad people. So in our podcast, we started with the first season was the idea of we would talk about a shooting incident. And the very first one we talk about is the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting where 20 children, six and seven-year-olds, were killed and six women that worked at the school. We started at Sandy Hook, and we talk about the shooting and then we turn to the shooter, not to talk about the shooter, but to talk about what signs the shooter gave us that we all missed. The concept is that we'll learn the signs, not just about any shooting, but about violence. And if somebody's going to commit violence, and if they're going down a pathway to violence, how can we stop them? So the funniest part is when you listen to Sarah, and I'm quizzing her. So I'll say, OK, here's what's going on. What signs were out there? And then all of a sudden, there's this silence. I edit that out. <laughs> She does. But if you listen to the first season, I don't know that as much, because the first season, I think we shot completely live. That might have been, she might have re-edited it because of that. I, I have. She's clearly not listening. <laughs> she might have edited out the pause, is what I'm saying. So the, the concept behind it is you don't get my opinion about what happened at Columbine. You get Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis, my friend's opinion about what happened. I call up friends of mine and say, Frank, I need you on my podcast. And then Frank comes on my podcast. You get somebody who is an expert in this or that. When you want to read about international mass shootings, you would read Adam Lankford's study. Or you could listen to the podcast and listen to Adam Lankford talk about Adam Lankford's study. Mm -hmm. So what we've been able to do in the podcast is bring to life people who are saving Sycamore, yeah, that's one of my favorite episodes. It's, it's a two episodes. It's two parts. So yeah. a woman who is a middle school counselor today who talked a gun out of a hand of a young man who came in, but it took a long time. And she tells us the story. The police mm. chief from the Aurora Theater shooting, who is a friend of mine, yeah. we still work together every day on all kinds of things. Chris Rosman, we're going to have on. You just don't know this yet, but he's okay. the... He's the police chief I'll, at Michigan State up. University. There was a shooting at my uh, university. Mm. And uh, Chris and I have been hanging out, and I told him he's going to be on the podcast soon. He said, okay. So surprise, season five. <laughs> the surprise is on you, because I'm just keeping season four running. And we're doing an episode every week now. So Oh, my. Yeah, I'm getting my pound of flesh. So talking of pound of flesh, you've just done a guest speaker spot just before this one. How many people, can I have a show of hands, who were in the room when Catherine did that? Okay, brilliant, excellent. You guys are going to be experts in this then. We're going to be covering myths and misinformation about mass shootings. And so you'll probably have a few ideas. We might throw some audience questions out there. But we've also got a load of questions from people this weekend that have kindly come over to our table and written them down. 
on what happens to be the tiniest piece of paper I could find on Amazon. Um, For those of you listening, they're two inches by two and a half inches. And honestly, listen, I haven't read any, so it's going to be a comedy of errors. Okay, so don't be shy. How many people have got questions left over from the last session that Catherine did that they want to answer, just so I know how much time to leave at the end? Oh, there's questions. Oh, we got, oh right. they always okay, have questions. Okay, two. All right. Excellent. Three. Oh, this feels like, it feels like an auction now. <laughs> Brilliant. So I want to start by sort of addressing a couple of elephants in the room. Sure. And these are questions that, you know, I came into this podcast with the questions that everybody has on mass shootings. First one that you hear all the time, mass shootings, just a US problem. True or false, Catherine? Eh, false. False. Absolutely the worst shootings, the highest number of shootings are in the countries that have the highest number of guns. The United States has the highest number of guns, for sure. But other countries, plenty of other countries, and those of you who know the names, Dunblane and... There's so many uh, places, and I think our laws are so much more complicated, I swear, than they are in so many other countries, and we're a big country. We have 50 states and federal government laws, local laws, state laws, county laws, so the gun laws are so complicated that where a shooting occurs in Scotland or Ireland or here, and we have this national government system, we're just going to pass this law can't do that the same way in the United States. Mm. So where they passed a law in your country, New Mm. Zealand, uh, they made changes in New Zealand, and they just did it with a swipe of a pen. Justin Trudeau is doing it, you know, and and his crew is doing it in Canada. You can't do that the same way. But most mass shootings, we have the gold crown for that, but they do happen all over the world. They're just not reported in the same way, and they're not the types of shootings that you think of as school shootings. So the question is, can I define a mass shooting in America versus elsewhere? So the challenge to that is that every country has its own determinations. And in the United States, the federal government, I'm going to say I'm partly responsible for this, the federal government never defined mass shootings. They've never said, this is exactly what you put in the category and exactly what you don't. So when Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting happened, I did start the FBI's active shooter program and did the first research that the FBI did. And what we count in the FBI is public shootings where an individual is actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a crowded space. So it's a broad, brushed area. However, we exclude, because we know those shootings happen, but we excluded from our count is our methodology. We don't count warfare between gangs. We know what causes that. We don't count warfare between drug dealers. We don't count murder suicides in a home, right? Because that's not out in public. What we're looking for are the threats that are out in public. That's what we think of as a mass shooting. But most mass shootings in the United States occur in the home. They are murder suicides, they're domestic violence issues, and you know, gun deals gone bad and drug deals gone bad. That's what most mass shootings are. In other countries, every researcher does their own criteria. And the United States is no different. So most countries don't necessarily have a definition, but you'll hear in the news a lot, especially if you hear U.S. news, they'll say, 
where four or more people have been killed. Well, you know, that just means that that's random shooting. I mean, the number of people dead does not have, to me, anything to do with the danger of the situation. And so it's a gravity issue for us at the FBI. We felt that we are going to look at any situation, and if there are 15 people injured and only one person killed, it's still a mass shooting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, when you see numbers and they talk about mass shootings from the United States, they're pulling in all these shootings that are shootings in the homes and shootings in neighborhoods that have nothing to do with public shootings, but they're excluding shootings like shooting that might occur in a church where there are 15 people injured, but only one person dead, and they don't count it as a mass shooting. So then I don't I particularly support that kind of criteria. The numbers that you're seeing are, are often pulled off of gun violence archives, and that's just a database. You know, it's a database. It's not based on anybody's real definition. So that's a very long answer, sorry, but just mm. to clear that up. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. You know, on the podcast, we do actually do global shootings because the places all over that have had shootings that you wouldn't expect them to be. And we've got two that have been in New Zealand that are absolutely horrific. And like you say, the government swung into action in New Zealand and made some changes pretty sweepingly. But not all countries are able to make those changes. And I know that's the case in America, having done four seasons with you. So while you wait for the government to actually do something... 
the thing that I've learned the most about doing this podcast with Catherine is there's actually stuff that we can all do in our communities and that we are the eyes, more, oh, yeah. more eyes than the police, really. We're the first line of defence. So at that community level, what advice would you give to people in terms of what they should be looking out for? So our Secret Service Research and the FBI are the two organizations in the United States that do the most research in the area of averted attacks and trying to find shooters and what to look for. And our research absolutely shows that you in the audience are five times more likely to see information about a shooter than a law enforcement person ever would because you live around them. Because what you're looking for is a typical behavior for that person. So if you are a gun owner, and you've always been a gun owner, that's your typical behavior. If you are a gun owner and you shoot on Saturdays for target shooting, like I know people who do, they go out for sport shooting on a Saturday and shoot clay or pigeons, you know, that's their typical behavior. If they suddenly, as we've seen in cases, a shooter who suddenly is shooting in their backyard every day, Every day they're shooting in the backyard. The, the neighbors are interviewed afterwards and they say, oh yeah, for a couple of weeks he's been shooting in his backyard every morning from like 6 to 8 o'clock every morning and then he goes to work. I'm thinking, he's probably changing his behavior. He's probably planning something. That's a change in his behavior. If he goes and buys more weapons, if he changes his appearance, if he starts wearing, and I say he because more than 95% of our mass shooters in the United States are male and around the world, truthfully, If he changes his behavior and he starts to dress differently than he did before, I'm, you know, think emo. Everybody's all in black. Well, we've all gone through those phases, I'm sure. Uh, But because we all (laughs) my favorite color. Yeah, we look thinner. Yeah. Um, So, so if you, hey, you're laughing, but it's true. You know it. She says wearing a black pinstripe suit. This is bureau black. (laughs) Hey, I work for Mr. Muller. He does not goof around. We've all seen men in black. Here comes a woman in black. <laughs> That's what it should be. <laughs> Sorry, it's hey. not a singing show either. I apologize. Next, she'll do her dance. Um, <laughs> so if you have these changes of behavior, that's what you're looking for. So somebody stops taking their medication. Somebody starts taking medication they never took before. Somebody gives away their possessions. 30 to 40% of our shooters commit suicide in a mass shooting situation. And that happens. We'll do the investigation afterwards because when a shooting happens, how any law enforcement investigates is you take the shooting incident and you work your way, way backwards. And, you know, what happened in the 10 minutes before? What happened in the 20 minutes before? What happened in the days before? And we go back and we interview neighbors and friends and family and check their social media sites and talk to their principals and their parents. And even when the shooter's dead and we find out, oh, uh, that so-and-so said, oh, yeah, he came and gave me his laptop. And he said, you can have it. I'm not going to need it anymore. Hello? You know, that's a suicide sign, right? And it might not be a mass shooting sign, but it's an indicator of suicide. So... Definitely the atypical actions. That's what you're looking for. And who sees those? All our research shows. Family, friends, schoolmates. In the case of the FBI's research on shootings that actually occurred, 92% of the high school age shooters or middle school age shooters, 12-year-old shooter, imagine, um, 92% of the students we discovered had told another student it was going to happen 92% of the time. Talk to your kids. That's my advice. Talk to your kids. I can tell you, I was just up in Detroit, Michigan, where there was a high school, terrible high school shooting up there. And let me tell you this about parents. 
four kids killed in the high school, Oxford High School. The kid was called to the principal's office. This is a great podcast episode. You got to hear the details, but I'm going to give you a couple of hints. The kid was called to the counselor's office because of some signs. The kid said, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. And I could tell you that today that kid is in jail for life. He killed four people. He's in jail for life, convicted of terrorism and murder. And his parents are now being tried for involuntary manslaughter. And the Michigan Supreme Court has said, yes, they can be charged. And they can be, there can be a trial for the parents because of conduct that occurred. So I know that sounds kind of like crazy. How can a parent be responsible for a kid? But the truth is, they can be. And in Michigan, we're going to try the test. I mean, involuntary manslaughter is yeah. 20 years. I mean, that's, that's a serious charge. And these parents, that shooting happened more than two years ago. The parents have been in jail ever since. Ever since they've been in jail. And actually, to your point, when we did our very first episode, we did it on Sandy Hook, which was, well, we didn't go in soft, did we? We went straight in. I remember somebody actually saying, don't start with Sandy Hook as your first episode. Yeah, our podcast um, platform said, don't do that. And yeah. I said, yeah, we're doing it. Yeah, because people are just scared of the topic generally. But at the end of that episode, Catherine gave me some quiz questions to see what I would report. And it's, it's astounding that even though I knew the right answer, I would still be resistant, you know, to do it. So let me ask you this. The Sandy Hook killer actually, I think six months beforehand, put up across his bedroom window uh, blackout, blind, like a rubbish bag or something to cover up. And she said to me on the podcast, she said, you know, who would have seen that? And I said, oh, you know, the neighbours would have seen that. And then she said, okay, well, you're his neighbour. What would you do? If I put that question to this audience now, how many people, by show of hands, would pick up the phone and report the neighbour having put a piece of blackout over the window? Yeah, no hands for no those hands. listening. Not a surprise, right? Not a no. surprise. And what I think you've used the term upstanders and not bystanders, and that really stuck with me. So I'm going to tell you, as a person who's taken those calls, I've taken a lot of those calls, those mm. calls at the last minute when people say, hey, this is going on, and this seems weird. And the thing about that is that when you make a call to law enforcement or when you make a call to the school counselor, you t call somebody and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but you know, Jimmy was over at our house, and he said X, Y, and Z, and I just wanted to tell you that. What you're doing is taking that off of your shoulders. Threat assessment teams at schools and at universities in the United States, at companies in the United States, law enforcement, all you're doing is passing a piece of information on to them. It's all a big puzzle. And they're not going to run out and arrest somebody because you randomly called and said somebody's got black curtains on his window all of a sudden. Yeah. They're not going to run out and say, hey, uh, this guy's shooting in his backyard, and they're not going to run out and arrest him, but they might inquire they might inquire, and that's what you want law enforcement to do. That's what you want the school counselor to do. If something's going on, you got to trust your instincts. I mean, we all have gut reactions to things. We have spidey senses, and so I'm always like, Sarah, just trust it, because you call and you take that burden off your shoulders. And I always think, you don't know that your little piece of the puzzle might be the last piece, and it might seem so small to you, but it might be that one sort of event that they needed that last corner piece of the puzzle to, oh, to yeah. take action, right? That well, happens. I'll say this, uh, not, not just as an as a, um, FBI uh, agent, but as a former prosecutor in Chicago, it is all those pieces, and you need those pieces. I can't get a search warrant unless I have the right pieces. 
And in that one piece, I mean, one phone call, I, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to deny it later, but I tricked somebody into giving me a signature once because I needed a handwriting exemplar. And so I kind of tricked him. His attorney said to me, that was very tricky and not nice. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> I love that. Your client is going to jail. <laughs> he was threatening people all over. He was threatening people all over, uh, all over the state and uh, in two, two states. And I thought we had the right guy, but I needed to see the handwriting to be sure. Yeah. And, the, and that was pretty funny. But I needed that handwriting exemplar in order to get the search warrant. And the search warrant gave us the search of his house and... Guilty. Job done. Job's guilty, a good guilty, end. guilty. He'd been terrorizing people for six months, seven months. Wow. You know, he was sending letters to schools saying, to schools and saying, and businesses saying, um, hi, this letter is anthrax powder and you are all dead now. Oh. And he was doing this and they would be evacuating these schools and evacuating these businesses and then he'd call in a bomb threat to the wherever they evacuated. He was not a nice guy. He needed to be tricked. That's oh, I'm, my, for, I'm I, for it. I'm for it. So let's just start with a random tiny, teeny little piece of yellow paper. What is the difference between, oh, this is a gun question, between automatic and semi-automatic guns? So automatic guns are not licensed in the United States. You can get one. It's a lot of expense and it takes really a hard time. An automatic gun, when you pull the trigger, it continues to fire until you take your finger off the trigger. Mm -hmm. uh, Semi-automatic rifles and handguns. I mean, it's called a semi-automatic because it means that a new round chambers in to the barrel and the ejection port, sorry to be so specific, kicks the shell out and then new round goes right back into the chamber so that it can be fired every trigger pull. You can pull a trigger, pull a trigger, pull a trigger, pull a trigger. Okay. Who had an audience question? I saw some hands go up. I'll go this one. Here, go. Yeah, uh, Chris Summers, I'm a crime reporter. I've been to America Right. Yes. I'm trying to talk to an American about gun control. I just, they just don't get it. Like, here we had Dunblane. Right. And we immediately banned all handguns. And since then, we've only had two mass shootings, Cumbria and Plymouth. And I, I was saying that to an American guy, and he was just like, oh, yeah, well, that's, yeah, whatever. You have, you have stabbings. Like, like what? The, how is that? You know, yeah, I have to say. We had a guy running around here with a knife, you know, stabbed two people and was then shot by police. Right. I have to how say that. That's exactly why I wrote this new book called, not to plug a book, but, you know, how to talk about guns with anyone, because even the people in the United States don't know the rules about guns and the laws about guns. But the gun laws are as complicated as our legislatures are, and people are afraid to talk about guns. They don't really know the facts. They don't really know the statistics. And the question really had to do with, you know, why won't people in the United States talk about guns? But it's because there's this very persistent view that you're either for guns or against guns, and that's the wrong answer. That's a wrong way to look at things. It's, it's just, you, it's not a question of being for or against guns. Many countries have guns, and they have regulations that govern who can have the guns and how they can have the guns. But in the United States, I think it's very hard for people to have that conversation because they don't have all the facts. And because we cover these massive, sensationalized coverage of shootings, and then you, and then you put a microphone in somebody's front of their face and you say, are you for guns or against guns? That's not the right question. You know, you're really for gun regulations. What types of gun regulations are you for? Mm. Okay. Next question. Oh, down the front here. Uh, Catherine, you mentioned earlier about when the incident happens, you kind of work backwards. Right. In 10 minutes, 20 minutes. 
be a shooter has committed suicide and you can't question them, what would you do then? You know, the question was, well, what really happens when you do the investigation and you work your way backwards? What do you do, especially if the shooter is deceased? Well, we found in the FBI, in our initial research, that we would ask for law enforcement. Hey, we'd say, hey, can you, we see that you had this shooting that happened in your town and who knows where, and uh, can you give us the police report? And they would say, well, the police report's two pages because the shooter's dead. So we have no information about what led up to the shooting. And so now law enforcement, I think, recognizes much more that even when the shooter is deceased, they need to go backwards and they need to figure out what happened that led to that shooting. And then that information is shared with other law enforcement agencies. There are after-action reports, they call them, that are, most of them are public. I, I have a bunch of after-actions on my website, the Columbine after-actions on my website, Virginia Tech. Sandy Hook, because we learn from those how to prevent the next shooting, and that's really the purpose of doing the investigation even when somebody's deceased. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy, and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.